Hey there! I'm really glad that you've come to check out the KZMC Weekly Teaching. My name is Ryan Yancey and I'm the lead pastor. KZMC gathers together for worship every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. in person. You can also join us by our live stream available on YouTube. If you're from the area and you're not already connected to a church, we'd love to have you come join us. You can find the full details at kzmc.ca. It's my hope and it's my prayer that God will speak to you through this teaching. May you have a marvelous day. Amen. Thank you so much, Phyllis. Yeah, it's so nice to be here with all of you. I was here with you a few years ago. I think my phone gave me a memory. It had pictures of a beach and pictures of church, and it's a really great way to to have a Sunday. So thank you for having me back. Uh, Since I have been with you, I've actually stepped back from my pastoral role at WMB. So uh, COVID made for a whole lot of realities, and having three little kids at home uh, definitely made it time for a change. And so I've been uh, working on some freelance writing and enjoying time with my kids. And so it's fun for me to come back and preach because church has looked a little different for us. So I'm glad to be here with all of you. And when I was a little girl, I could really struggle with whether or not I was valuable. I really thought that being valuable meant being the best at everything, which meant that my grade one report card said, Sarah does well, but seems to struggle when other people do better than she does. Poor little six-year-old Sarah. But that was how I was just always really hard on myself. And as soon as I started to get really hard on myself, my mom could recognize this spiral. She would recognize it and she would look at me and she would say, who are you? Who are you? And I had to say back, I'm Sarah Smith, because my super creative maiden name was Smith. And so I would have to say, I'm Sarah Smith. And she would make me answer. She would make me repeat that, I'm Sarah Smith, until I said it the way that she thought reflected the good, beautiful, loving person that God made me to be. Because generally it started with, like, I'm Sarah Smith. And I had to get all the way until I could really own saying that, until I could own the truth behind it. I'm Sarah Smith. I'm Sarah Smith. And more than I maybe want to admit, I still go through this process with myself where I have to remember who I am and where my value lies so that when someone says, who are you? I can say, I'm Sarah Smith. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm forgiven and I'm loved. I'm valuable. I'm made for a purpose. I'm changing. I'm growing. Who are you? Who we are is this foundational question of our identity, the deepest place where we understand ourselves to be connected. Where is our identity rooted? Friends, this is important stuff. If this piece is out of place, this identity piece, if it's located outside of Jesus, outside of God's love, then we're far more likely to function, to make decisions, to allow behaviors, to tell lies, to listen to lies, to break relationship with God and with others because our identity is rooted outside of him. Because outside of him, there's just us striving for control, trying to manage our fake destiny into being. We only love other people when they can give us something. We use power for gain. We encourage privilege as a right when we put our identity outside of God. When actually, I'm Sarah Smith. 
I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm valuable. I'm made for a purpose. I am changing and growing. Who are you? Who are we? Our identity needs to be rooted in Christ, in Jesus, in the Father's love, because that's where the kingdom comes to fruition. That's where the work of the cross and the hope of the resurrection gets to play out in real life. That's where we're able to say in all of the brokenness, he is still good. We will still seek him in all of this. In North America, we are sold a bill of goods on a daily basis to help us clarify our identity. In the days before COVID, when we went to bookstores, um, Brian and I were walking down an aisle and he noticed that every book that faced out into the aisle was something to make you better, that you needed to be made better. Self-improvement, fixing you, fixing me, fixing our identity so that you could control if you were good. You could be better, healthier, fitter, smarter, richer, stronger, more togetherer. The identity that the world is selling you are these er words, adding er to the end of things. Then, and only then, will you be good enough. You'll get more Instagram followers. You'll get that promotion. That person will be attracted to you. Your marriage will be better. You'll be nicer if you just fix yourself. Then you'll be able to care about people because you'll finally have managed all those things that have stopped you from caring about other people. Then, 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 then. But when our identity is rooted in Jesus' love, we don't have to be any of those things. We can experience Christ and his love. We can live into and out of the brokenness, aware of our sin. We stand before the cross and proclaim the resurrection. Our brokenness is held by him. We are sent by him. Our, not, our hope is not in what we can produce, but what he can create through us and our lives. Our actions aren't motivated by selling those around us a lie about who we are, but to live out the messy, messy truth of life. See, this is the best news, that it isn't about us having it all together, but traveling together through it all, believing in an abundant Jesus who is opening the doors of new life, reminding me that I'm Sarah Smith. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm valuable. I'm made for a person. I'm changing. I'm growing. This morning, we're going to look at the life of David. And I just want to say that David is a lot of things. And we are not going to be able to cover it all in one morning. But we're actually going to start with one of David's more challenging places. We're going to camp out in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And I won't read all of it. You'll get Sarah's storytelling hour. Because otherwise, we'd be reading scripture all morning. So we're going to start with a problem. We're going to start with David, and so we're going to open up the scripture where it says, in the springtime, at the time when the kings go off to war, I'd just like to pause there. What do you mean it's springtime and you go to war? Oh, let's plant a crop, put the plant in, go fight a war. This is a terrible plan. But anyway, it was springtime, and the kings went off to war, and David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rahab. But David stayed in Jerusalem. So David is the king of Israel, has been for a little while. He's got a whole story before this. And he worked really hard for this long-promised throne. He is the king of Israel. It's a good gig. He has a palace. He has army. He has citizens. He has favor from God. But David remained in Jerusalem. 
in scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, when you're reading it and it's like, here's what everyone was supposed to do, but this person did that instead, that's a red flag. That means a lot of bad decisions are about to come down the pipe. But I kind of imagine, so here's David singing at home in his palace while other people are off fighting his yearly war. And he's there, and he's home, and if someone said to him, who are you, David? I feel like the answer might be something to the tune of, I'm David. I'm the king of Israel. I'm the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the land. When I say jump, entire armies jump. When I say stop, they stop. I'm David. I'm awesome. He's king, and he has sent his army out on this expedition. He used to go with them. He's supposed to be with them in the trenches, in the struggle, with them. But this story happens in the spring, and David sends Joab instead. So he can stay back. Let the army fight as they need to. Okay, so the army is gone. They're fighting. David is home. David is bored. It's 2 a.m. David is supposed to be in bed, but David's not in bed. Again, red flag. Something bad is about to happen. And so he goes to the roof, and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is washing herself as in the same garments that you wash yourself in. And she is in the right place to do this. This is where her bath is. David isn't where he is supposed to be. He's supposed to be in bed, better yet, at war. He's in none of these places. So he looks at her and he thinks, yep. And David sends for her. Oh, David. David, what are you doing? What are you doing, David? Go to bed, David. Nothing good happens after 2 a.m., David. And he's like, what? I'm the king of Israel. I'm the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the world. When I say jump, entire armies jump. When I tell them to stop, they stop. I'm David. I'm awesome. So he sends two messengers. And if you're good at math, I'd like you to start keeping track of numbers. So David has sent two people to get uh, Bathsheba. Bathsheba shows up and she sleeps with him. So he's implicated Bathsheba as well. After all, he's David. He's the king of Israel, leader of one of the most powerful nations in the world. He wants people to jump, they jump. Stop, stop. He's awesome. And you might wonder if it matters that Bathsheba was on the roof having a bath, but it really does, because the scripture tells us that she was ritually washing after her period. So that's what she was doing. David comes. They do what people do at night after 2 a.m. when they make bad decisions. And she gets pregnant. But I'm David. I'm the king of Israel. I'm the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the world. When I say jump, people jump. When I tell them to stop, they stop. I'm awesome. Because now this woman has washed herself and her husband is in the army. And that means that I cannot confuse the paternity of this child. That is David's baby. Okay, so now our friend David has a choice. Option one, tell the truth. Now, let's not be silly, friends. That's what people who have their identity rooted in God's love do. They are able to see the brokenness and they move through it to redemption and reconciliation, facing the reality, choosing the conversation, building in with one another. Or there's option B. Make several bad decisions in an attempt to cover your tracks. Any votes on what David's going to do? Yeah? A? And we're done? No. B. 
So he is like a cover-up, an easy out is, of course, better. Because when your identity is rooted in your awesomeness, you work to protect your awesomeness. So David sends word to Joab. That's another person implicated. We're at about four now. And he tells Joab to send Uriah home. Uriah, that's five. So Uriah comes home, and they have this great conversation. David's like, how's the war going? What's up? How's it going? They make some small talk. And David is like, you know what? While you're here, why don't you go home and wash your feet? Now, in other strange scriptural insights, sometimes the word feet aren't feet. They're feet. (laughs) The last time I talked about this, my mother-in-law was in the room. When Ruth lies at Boaz's feet, so Uriah doesn't actually need to wash his feet. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So Uriah doesn't, he doesn't go home. He won't even go home. He sleeps on the floor outside. And David, David, is like Uriah. And you know what Uriah's name means? Uriah's name means the Lord is my lamp. That's who Uriah is. And David is like, why? Like, why didn't you go home? And this is what Uriah, the Lord is my lamp, replies. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Guys, who just did that? David. And so you think maybe this upright, thoughtful, humble answer would snap David out of it, right? Oh, yeah, no, you're right, bad idea. But not so. Instead, he decides to keep Uriah another night and gets him drunk. He's like, we'll just eat and drink a whole lot more. He tries to send him home again with all of Uriah's inhibitions lowered and that pesky honorability thing set aside. But again, Uriah won't go home. Now, who has not come up once in this story? God. David, the one who calls on the Lord in his time of trials, isn't even looking to God a little bit. Instead, he tries to solve this problem on his own. He can't confuse the paternity, which is what he was hoping to do. If Uriah slept with his wife, it could be Uriah's baby kind of thing. So he needs another solution. And then naturally, apparently, the one he comes up with is to kill Uriah. So he sends a note to Joab with Uriah. So Uriah takes his own death note to Joab, telling Joab to go where the fighting is the fiercest and to put Uriah at the front lines. And you know... Whatever happens, happens. What? I'm the king of Israel. I'm, one of the leader, I'm the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the land. When I say jump, people jump. When I say stop, everyone stops. I'm David. I'm awesome. This is what we're doing. So Joab does as David orders and sends the army into fight in order to let Uriah die. So not only now do we have those like five or six people we already had, now we have tens of thousands of army people of the, the, the military who's gone with him, who are implicated into David's problems. And in the blink of an eye, Uriah is dead. 
Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king the account, this account of battle, the king's anger may flare and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Imbimelech, son of Jerubbethesh? Didn't a woman drop a millstone upon him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so close to the wall? And if he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told everything, da everything Joab had sent him to say, and the messenger sent to David, The men overpowered us and against us in the open. We drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. So you might be familiar with this story, and we might think that this is a story about David and his sin, which, of course, it is. But the part that I can't shake actually isn't much to do with Uriah and David or, Uriah, or David and God. It's about all of the people he invited into his brokenness. All of the lies and sins he had them participate in because his identity was at stake. Because someone could find out that he had done something he shouldn't have done. That he had fathered a child of another man's wife that he had taken advantage. But he was so out of touch with who he is and who God called him to be because we know David's identity is so much more than this. All of those people, that army, all of the other king's men who died, all of the people who had to show up and do what was not okay. Our identity being rightly placed in Jesus is good for us. Of course it is. But consider what it means for other people. See, there is a danger in our identities when they think they are just about us that our ability to know and recognize the work of Jesus in our life is just about us and our salvation, that that sense of self is the end goal. No, when our identity is rooted in worldly powers, in the accumulations of more errs, it impacts other people. And when our identity is rightly placed in Jesus, it also impacts others. Our identity is revealed in the invitations we extend David extended invitations of deceit to Bathsheba, to Uriah. He used Joab. He required his army to fulfill his bidding. That's the invitation he was extending. Of course, this isn't all of David. This is one scenario, but it's important to remember how far he traveled from the call on his life. Who are you inviting? Are you inviting people into Christ's kingdom, into wholeness and love and truth, redemption, hope and grace? to a place where the mess is indeed the message, where God's love is indeed the hope? Or are you inviting them to a kingdom of you, controlling, fearful, limited, painful? What's the invitation on your lips, in your posture, in the stories you tell? Are you presenting and promoting perfection, or are you telling people the truth, the good news, and the way it lives out in your world? Because I can say that I'm Sarah Smith, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm valuable, I'm made for a purpose, I'm changing, I'm growing. I can say it, but I have to live it too. I have to tell the story, reveal my identity. We do this all the time in many ways. We do it in the invitations we extend. We see exactly in this moment where David was inviting people, where are we doing the same or different? 
And this would be a hard place to end a message, to end a story, to end our time together. It's important, but it would be hard. But it still doesn't tell us what God had to say in all of this. We still haven't heard what he had to say to David or what the hope of the story is. Right now we have adultery, lies, and murder. Let us hope no story ever ends there. So this terrible thing comes to pass, and David thinks perhaps that he's gotten away with it. Bathsheba mourns her husband, and when the time is right, David marries her, and she has a baby. And then God shows up. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Dun, 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 dun. David is still in this mode, though. What? I'm the king of Israel. What choice did I have? I'm the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the world. I say, jump. They jump. Stop. Stop. When I tell them to go and make sure someone dies, they go and they make sure someone dies. I'm David. I'm awesome. But there are always corrections when we're so far off course, so far from the hope God has for us, so far from the plan he had in place. There are corrections in people, in our consciousness, in scripture, in circumstances. Uriah was a correction that David refused to see. He was the only one in this story who didn't do what David asked. So God sends someone else. else. Nathan. I'm Nathan. I'm a prophet. I get to go tell the murdering king of Israel that the thing he done has displeased the Lord. I'm doomed. This is a bad job. It's a bad job, everybody. Oh, super. That's the note? I'm going to pull a Jonah other direction but he's smart Nathan's smart Nathan's got it Nathan does it like this so the Lord sent Nathan to David and we came to him he said David there were two men in a certain town one rich and the other poor and the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle and the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought he raised it it grew up with him and with his children it shared his food it drank from his cup gross. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the one little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. And David burned with anger against the man. What a great sentence. David burned with anger and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord said. The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 
This is what the Lord says, out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before the very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will make the thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Nathan tells a story that gets David to see the injustice he has perpetrated. Nathan is the correction David could not ignore. He is rightly corrected and knocked down several pegs. See, gone is I'm the king of Israel. I'm the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the land. When I say jump, entire armies jump. When I tell them to stop, they stop. When I say murder, people murder. I'm awesome. But now we have, I'm David. I have sinned against the Lord. His identity is corrected. And here again, what God told him, I anointed you king, I delivered you, I gave you a house and I gave you wives, I gave you Israel and Judah, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more, but you despised my word. You knew who I made you to be, David. God is telling him you knew, and if you had needed more, I would have given it to you, because I am a generous, loving God. Why would you do this thing? Why? See, David, remember earlier in the story, David sent a note of death with Uriah. But God sends a very different message to David. Because here is the good news. God is not a God of second chances. If so, we would have written off David a while ago. He is a God of infinite chances. This story will have a lasting impact on David's life. That baby will die. How could it not? It happened. But God does not leave David or end the story here or even change the lineage that leads up to, to Jesus. This doesn't disqualify David from that. He will give him another chance and another son and another and another. Who are you? Do you need a Nathan? Who are you? Who are you, David? He is the one who is called, anointed, favored, worshipful, flawed. I'm Sarah Smith. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm valuable. I'm made for a purpose. I'm changing and I'm growing and I'm flawed. But I'm not defined by that. David wasn't defined by that. I'm not done my work for the kingdom or hiding in a corner because my brokenness will not break the kingdom. I will not stop because I am not perfect. I am a child of the living God and a bearer of good news, and so are you. You are a child of the living God. You are a bearer of his good news. Your brokenness will not break the kingdom. You will not stop simply because you are not perfect. Where are you inviting people? What is the infinite chances God is offering you? Who are you? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we get to answer this question in light of who you are, in light of a God who has come and loved, who has said, let the little children come to me, who has gone to the depths of darkness and risen over all the very things we believe are unchangeable. 
for all of the things about ourselves that we think are not good, for all of the things we think cannot change, for all of the places we have put down roots that we refuse to move, Jesus, would, would we remember that you have overcome them all, that we can place the fullness of our identity in you, that we can celebrate it each and every single day, and that we can invite others openly, willingly, and welcoming them into your kingdom because you are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. You are the great king, and we worship your name. Amen.